Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 5. We'll study verses 20 and 21. If you're visiting with us, we have studied verse by verse through the entire book of Romans up until here in chapter 5. And this morning we're concluding chapter 5 with verses 20 and 21. And here in chapter 5 specifically, the Apostle Paul begins what some have called the book of justification by faith. And that means simply that a person is called righteous or in a good standing before God, simply by having faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's central teaching here. And so as we turn again to this passage of Scripture, we have the apostle paying attention to the analogy of sin and grace, and he is teaching regarding those two things as opposites. Sin and grace as opposites. So let us turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God of heaven, we have heard your word and we pray that you would sanctify us in truth. Your word is the truth. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Wesley wrote about the effect of grace in his own life in his famous hymn, And Can It Be?, And this is the stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The wonderful testimony of amazing grace. That through Jesus there is freedom, like chains being broken off of our body. So that we are a people unto the Lord to receive the blessings of his love. This morning as we go to Romans chapter 5 again, Paul is focusing specifically on God's saving grace. On this sort of thing, the thing that captured, that saved and released the heart of Charles Wesley. And he's pointing out to us specifically that the grip of sin and the death that comes from it 
is in every way broken. And we are given righteousness, freedom, life, and life eternal by faith in Jesus Christ. So the two things I want us to see specifically in the passage. Firstly, in verse 20, the power of grace. The power of grace, verse 20. And then in verse 21, the reign of grace. The reign of grace. As we come to these verses, we are, of course, on the heels of verses 12 through 19. And it's in those verses that Paul begins the style of his argumentation. Or maybe I should say the logic of his convincing testimony. And what he does in verses 12 through 19 is he shows us the analogy between Adam and Jesus Christ. The analogy between the terrible effects of Adam's sin and the sweet and the wonderful gifts of Jesus' one act of righteousness, his death on the cross for you and me. Now, when I talk about analogy, I don't mean that they're the same thing, but rather I mean an analogy of opposites, where he's taking and he's drawing a contrast. He's putting them as antithetical against one another so that in the darkness of one we can see the light of the greater. And here in verses 20 and 21, he focuses his attention on a different analogy. And I've mentioned this to you already. And that's the analogy between sin and grace. And again, it's not that these two things are alike. Far from it. These things are polar opposites. The sin of the heart of man and the grace of the heart of the Lord, the God of heaven. And he begins in verse 20 by explaining the effect that the law, that is the Ten Commandments, has had, and I would just simply say still has, on sinful people. He writes in verse 20 that the law came in to increase the trespass. Let me say that again. The law came in or came alongside if you will, to increase the trespass. And if you're listening and paying good attention, like I hope you all are, you may be thinking to yourself, what is going on here? God gave something to make people sin more. Is that what this is saying? This law, this this revelation of God, it came in for the sole purpose so that people would break it? They do it more? They sin more and more and more? Is that what it's saying? Hang on, pastor. Hold on. Wait a second. This needs some explanation. And I think, friends, it just simply does. We have to ask questions of the word of God. We have to interrogate it in faith that the word of God is comfortable being interrogated by people like you and like me and that God can teach us through his own word and explain to us what he means on his own terms. Yeah, that's what Paul says. He says that the law came in to increase the trespass. And before any of you go and say, well, he's not talking about the moral law at Sinai. He's just talking about the ceremonial or the civil law of the people of Israel. You know, those things that you probably don't put on a lawn ornament and stick out by the curb. All those laws about the testimony of the sacrificial system. All those laws that regarded the kingdom of Israel and its ruling and how things were to be done very 
basically and civilly, just like the law of the day. That's got to be what he's talking about. But friends, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the moral law. I think he's talking about God revealing his heart to his people in that specific place, Mount Sinai, to that specific man, Moses, on those specific tablets of stone where he chiseled the things that delight his heart for us to read and for us to know as a standard, as a rule, as a law for us to be matched up against, called to, and then measured by. And Paul says what? He says that law came in to increase the trespass. So help me, pastor. I'm tracking with you. It's the Ten Commandments we're talking about here. But help me. Well, I think that what Paul says here helps us tremendously whenever he calls the sin trespass. It's here again. We've already read about trespass. We talked about it last week and the verses that immediately came before these verses. What is a trespass? Well, it's pretty simple, really. It's when you know what is right and you decide still to do what's wrong. I could give you very simple, very plain illustrations of this. It's like a father sitting at the table with his family and he looks around at his kids and he says, all right, kids, dad bought something new and it looks really neat, but you're not supposed to ever touch it. Don't go near it. Definitely don't turn it on. It's a wood chipper and it's out back. It's, it's, under, it's under the shed, kids. It's dangerous. If you stick your arm in, bad stuff's going to happen. And the kids say, okay, dad, all right, yeah, yeah, we get it, we understand. But then the next day, what does dad do? He takes the wood chipper out, he turns the wood chipper on, and the blades begin to spin. And I'll tell you, it seems like nothing is more interesting, at least to five and seven-year-old little boys, than to watch people put stuff in a wood chipper. They watch videos of this stuff online. And I say to my kids, this is just mindless, right? There's just wood chips flying everywhere, and it just looks like fun. You put something in, and it shoots it out across the yard. It's incredible. And what do the kids do? As soon as dad's back is turned, I know he said that's dangerous. It doesn't look that bad. Hey, what do you say we turn that thing on? Put a limb in, right? We know he said not to. Let's do it anyway. That's a little illustration for you. It's knowing the right thing. Knowing the law and breaking the law. It's hearing that it's dangerous and just saying in yourself, oh, it's not dangerous. I'll do whatever I want to do. I'm the one who's going to decide what the standard is for my life. You know, last time we encountered the word trespass in this passage of Scripture was where? It was just last week. And it was about the trespass of that one man, Adam. And what was his trespass? Well, it was in the garden, wasn't it? And what was it that God told him? What was the law that the Lord told him? It was a very simple one. And it was only one, not ten, it was one. He said, what? You should not take of the tree, of the knowledge, of good and evil. That's it. That's it. That was the law. He had one law. Don't take of this tree. Do not do it. And what did he do? He knew the law. Yet he broke the law, and so he trespassed the word 
of God and sinned. But so what are we saying here? Well, it's that Paul is saying to us that when the law was given, we weren't just given one law. We were given at bare minimum ten laws. We were given ten instructions about the heart of God and the things we should do and should never do. Right? And that when we sin and when we do anything against those laws, we are trespassing and sinning knowledgeably. We are knowingly saying, I won't do what you tell me, God. We are knowingly disobeying God. With open eyes and open minds and hearing ears, we are ignoring him and simply doing what we want. We are treating the law of God like a woodchipper, an opportunity for fun, rather than the dangerous thing that it actually is. And Paul says this gave an opportunity for sin to increase, for sin to grow. Well, there's one aspect of this that I want you to understand. That yes, it means that sin is seen and understood in the mind of a person better. So that before the law, if they did this or that, broke the first through the fourth or the fifth through the tenth commandment, they may or may not have full perception of it other than the simple sense that maybe that was probably wrong. But with the law, they know they've done it. They see it. In a more true and clear sense. They understand its offense. And so there's part of this that is telling you and telling me that whenever you have the law, the sin increases as you break it in the knowledge of our sin. Almost as if we taste our sin like a fine delicacy, like a perfect glass of Bordeaux as we sip it and savor it and enjoy it. But then there's another aspect to this, I think. And it speaks not necessarily about the character of the law, but the character of our hearts. Because it's not just sinless people receiving the law, is it? No, it's absolutely not. No, 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 no. Fallen people in Adam, a sinful people. We've already studied that in chapter 5. Paul has said that. If you've not been with us, just read back a few verses and you'll pick up the homework notes from previous weeks. It is the law given into the hands of sinful men with sinful minds and sinful hearts and sinful mouths and sinful hands, sinful delights and affections. And I want to suggest something to you that sinful men given the beautiful, perfect, holy, righteous law of God, his heart in ten commandments in the hands of people. What does the sinful man do? He says, well, this is, in essence, ten suggestions to how I may offend him and mock him and deny him and disobey him and turn my back on him. A game plan for rebellion and reckless living and unholiness and the offense of the God of heaven. And you say, hang on, pastor. Never once have I heard the Ten Commandments and thought, wow, that's what I'm going to shoot not to do. I'm going to try to disobey each and every one of these things. But let me encourage you, friends, for just a second to think on any one of your sins. And if you're like me, you've got plenty to choose from. There's a buffet there of rebellions against God. 
And then think of it overlaid on the commandments of God and then read the offense through them and you'll begin to get a little of an understanding of the things that dominate our hearts when we choose to do these things against God. You're going to see your sin in a bigger and more prolific format. Some years ago, I sat with a friend of mine. He is a friend. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's not an agnostic. He's an avowed atheist and an angry one. And he's a very, very large man. He's six foot eight. I don't know what that is in centimeters, but it's very tall, taller than most of you here. Very large man, really deep voice, a friend of mine. And I'm sitting with him and we've had this conversation. This is about the time when I'm entering seminary to study theology. Uh, and I'm visiting with him, and we're having a long conversation. And he says, you know, uh, you know, I know you're in seminary, and uh, you know I'm an atheist, right? And I said, yeah, I do. I know that you're an atheist. He says, well, maybe I can convince you that there is no God. And so I said, go ahead, give it your best try. So we sit there, and hour after hour, we talk and discuss things. And I can tell that any time that I'm not just, you know, cowering in a corner and trembling under the accusations of an atheist. Every time he feels like the argument didn't land or every time with scripture, I come back and refute the suggestion that he has made to me. He just gets a little more angry. He gets a little louder and the voice gets deeper and gets louder and he gets bigger and he At some point, he's just like this great hulk of anger. It's like 3 a.m. He and I are sitting and talking. His wife has long since gone to sleep and just said, forget this. I appreciate hours of shut eye. He finally just breaks down and shouts at me and he says, I know there is a God and I hate him. And he goes into this long line of curses against God things I would never say and he said and I want to say these things because I hate God and I know that it offends him and you may say whenever I sin I'm doing what I want but I'm not really aiming at God and I would just simply say that at the heart of every sinner is a heart that's no different than that heart of the atheist who is happy to offend God and to do whatever he wants to do, knowing that it offends God, without an ounce of fear, without a concern. Now, I'm not telling you that the heart of a believer is the same as the heart of an atheist, but I am telling you that the hearts of sinners, no matter what they call themselves, is basically identical unless it is remade in Christ. That's pretty hard. Because Paul is telling us that the good thing that God gave, the law of God, that this wonderful thing, that we took it and we gave to it the occasion for sin and sinning a lot, and that our sin expanded and abounded and increased. But that's not the end of the verse. Because again, this is a text in analogies, and it's the analogy of sin and grace. What does he say? The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace 
abounded all the more. One biblical commentator translated it, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Where sin increased, grace super increased. Where there was sin and offense in the depth of the darkness of the heart of a rebellious man, woman, or child, the grace of Christ is not just as big, not just bigger than, but much, much greater and much, much more powerful. Much, much more significant and way, way more effective than any of his sinning of the hearts of humanity. And so friends, if you heard the first portion of what I've said just a moment ago and you thought that's a really tough pill to swallow, if sin's like that and if I'm a sinner and I've done that sort of thing and my heart has committed that against God, I don't really like it. And Paul is saying there's a remedy in the person of Jesus Christ. There's help in His grace and in His blood and in His mercy and His cross. And you say, well, what's grace? What is grace, Pastor? What is this thing that's greater than sin, more powerful than sin? What are we talking about here? It's you not getting what you deserve, friends. And it's you getting what you could never deserve. It's you not getting the punishment that's owed to your sins because Jesus took it in His body on the tree. And it's you getting all the blessing and all the love and all the life that He deserves and all the rewards that His obedience deserves. Do you understand? He took your punishment and He gave you all of His blessings. And what Paul is saying is this. Think for just a second on the mountain of your sin. Just think on it. Have you lost track? That's just your sin. That's not your neighbor's sin. That's just your sin that you can't keep track of. It's not your kid's sin, your wife's sin, your husband's sin. That's just yours that you can't even conceive of. And he's saying this to you. Jesus' grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his kindness, his cleansing, his restoring mercy and transformative power is even more inconceivable than the grace that you can't recall and the sin that you can't recall. It's so much more. That there is more grace for sinners than sinners could ever actually need. It's love piled upon love upon love upon love upon love. And it's freely given to you by the work of Jesus. In verse 21 we continue in the same vein of thought with the same sort of analogy. And he returns to the language of verse 17, to the language of raining. We're not talking about precipitation or water falling from the sky. We're talking about raining or ruling like a king or a ruler might do. You understand? On a throne. And what's Paul's point? Why is he coming to this? Well, it's so that we might ask the Bible some more questions. Verse 21 So that as sin reigned in death, grace also 
might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he talk about reigning and why does he talk about the rule of sin and its effect? Well, he's going to tell you. It's because the effect of sin is extensive. It's deep. He describes it as a rule, like something like an absolute leader. You heard me maybe pray earlier if you're paying any attention. And I said, God, your arm is not short. There's nothing too far for him to touch upon. There's nothing beyond his reach. There's nothing outside of his control. It's a statement of sovereignty, of power, of authority. And what Paul is saying is that in the lives of men, women, and children, that sin reigns with a power and a sovereignty and an authority like a ruler reigning on a throne. And that it reigns in death. That that's the weapon in its hands that's, in essence, the sharpness of its blade It's a pretty hard thing to think on. But I think I can illustrate it a little bit, maybe give some explanation to it. And I want to ask the kids in the church to help me, all my little catechism kids in the church. Kids, look up, paying attention, got a question for you. How sinful are you by nature? Say it loud, we want to hear it. I am corrupt in every part of my being. Even children know, at least theoretically, the extent, the depth of the rule of sin in our persons. Corrupt in every part of my being. Not as corrupt as you could possibly be. Not as bad as you could imagine a person to be. But from the top of your head, the very tip of the hair on top of your head, to the very bottom of the soles of your feet, every part of you is touched by sin. That sin has a rule in our thoughts in our words, in our affections, our tastes. That all of these things are captive, like they're in chains. They're affected by a ruler, by sin holding its power over the body and the persons of people. Sin affects our bodies. Certainly it does. It affects us with... Infectious diseases with congenital deformity and diseases. Things that people are born with, if you will. It affects us in the, the sins that we bring on our bodies and the things that we do to our bodies. Eating, drinking, this, that, or another thing. Smoking, all this kind of deal. Drugs, all the kind of things we can do to our bodies. It affects our bodies as a rule over our bodies in a sense. It attacks our relationships and causes a wedge to be driven between husband and wife, between friends, between brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and kids and their parents. I don't think you'll question that one for a second. Sin attacks us as if it's waging war against us by the hands of wicked men. You know of any atrocities of war? Any injustices done man to man One stranger doing an unimaginable thing to another. What Paul is saying, ultimately, the long arc of the rule of sin and its power in people and over their lives is that it kills them. 
and there is death. Its rule, its reign is extensive. It is powerful, but Paul wants you to know that it's not absolute. He's saying to you and to me as you continue in this verse of Scripture that if that made you very uncomfortable, there's good news that even as sin reigned in death, if you can imagine all of what we just said and we're tracking it all, that grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. That grace has a role and it has an authority and it has a power in the lives of people if they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to death. You're no longer a people in chains and in bondage. No, 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 no. Overpowered, overwhelmed, conquered and controlled by sin and death and the effects of it and the fear of it and its tyranny. He's saying that through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, that one righteous act, He's saying you're giving grace You're given reconciliation with God, forgiveness, restoration, freedom from sin. Yes, control even over fallen flesh. A mind being renewed, being restored, being changed. That your soul is being ministered to. That love is being poured into you. And that the reign of the grace of Jesus has won the victory over death. If sin reigned, the grace of Christ super reigns. If it was sovereign, He's the sovereign King over it. If it killed you, you will live forever in Him. And you ask me, friend, well, how is that possible? If you put your trust in Him, you say, hang on a second. You mean I don't have to go back and take an eraser to my life and mark out all those mistakes that I've done and make them where you can't see them and repair over them? No, no, friends, you don't have to because he's done that for you. You mean that I don't have to then take that weight of my sin and all the things that I've done, those things that would stick me to the ground and overweigh me, that I don't have to do good to swing it back in my favor? Friends, you couldn't do it, but I want to tell you, no, you don't, because He has done it for you. You mean mean to tell me I don't have to have this and that other thing and all these different things, this religious life? You mean I don't have to take up the orders of a monk and go into a cave? I mean to tell you that Christ died for you and has given to you His obedience as a gift if you have faith in Him. And this morning, I just simply want to invite you. Will you put your faith in Jesus? Will you trust in Him? So that you can have this wonderful gift of eternal life. And that you might stand in wonderful victory in the face of death. And say, where 
is your sting. Will you have him? And Christians, if you do have him, praise God, this is yours. Let your hearts well up in the gift that you've been given. Be more excited than a kid for the first snow day about the wonderful gifts of Jesus. And rejoice in the Savior that died for you and who lives again. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the cross. The gift of his grace. Father, we ask that you would multiply its gifts to each of us. That you would help us to believe on Christ, even if with weak, trembling, failing, doubting faith, that we would not let go of Jesus, our Savior. And that, Lord, we would be reminded that he never lets go of us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy of the gift of your Son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.